If you have a Bible, uh, like Joel said, we're going to continue our series in the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, open to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to put the text up on the screen there for you. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. What Paul has been doing in the book of uh, uh, Ephesians is he's writing to this church. So um, this is a real letter from a real guy named Paul to a real church at a place called Ephesus. And he's writing to these people to describe to them and to remind them who they are in Christ. Because what you believe about your identity determines how you're going to live. And so Paul is teaching them by way of remembrance to remember who exactly that they are in Christ. And what, what Paul's encouraging us and them is to live out of what God says about us and to operate in view of what God has for us. He's reminding us, he's reminding them of who we are in Christ. So as we, as we look at this text, remember that this was written first to the Ephesians specifically, and then us generally. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You are without hope and without God in the world, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household. Let's pray and just ask God to help us with this passage this morning. Father, we love you, and God, I'm so thankful for the way you provide for us. God, you've provided this day. You said this is the day that you've made that we'd rejoice and be glad in it. God, you've given us this place, and God, this time, and God, you've given us your word and this opportunity to hear from you. And so, God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, God, you would teach us and that you would speak with us this morning. God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, God, we would hear and see with clarity. God, I pray for conviction where conviction is needed. God, I pray for encouragement this morning where encouragement is needed. Um, God, I pray most of all that I myself would be hidden and, God, that you would be magnified and seen. Jesus, I love you. And uh, I'm so thankful for you. That's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's work back through this passage together. Verse 11, Paul says, therefore. Now, you've probably heard this said when someone's teaching. Whenever there's a therefore, you should stop and see what it's there for. Um, What it's there for are the first kind of 10 verses of what Paul has already been talking about. We are dead in our sins and our rebellion and offense against Jesus. Sin leads to death. Jesus 
leads to life. And so what Paul is saying is, remember. Remembering is a key part of our journey together as Christians. Remember who you were. Remember what Christ has done. Remembering is the way that we name and process the past. It's the way that we structure our minds to know how to live. And so Paul says, remember. Remember the absolute life-altering change that Christ has brought in us from dead to sin to life in Christ. And Paul's saying, because when you forget, you lose the wonder of the cross. When you, when you forget, you lose the wonder of the cross. You, you, you lose the, the wonder of your salvation, which means worship and thanksgiving are not something that, that comes naturally to you because you, you don't have the wonder of the cross. You don't have the wonder of what it is that God has done through Christ on your behalf. When, when you forget, you don't have a desire to proclaim the mercy of God. When you forget, you, you're not aware of the mercy that is needed of those around you. In verse 11, Paul mentions the circumcision. In the, in the Jewish faith, you were circumcised as a sign of your participation in the promises and the covenants of the nation of Israel. That was the way that you were physically marked as one of those who were part of the household of faith. And what the Jews would, would love to do is they'd love to call those who were not Jews the uncircumcised. They made this distinction. We're chosen, you are not. It's even prefaced with, 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 with un. And if you've ever been welcome somewhere and unwelcome somewhere, you know the feeling. If you were a Gentile, you knew right away that you were not included in the faith of the Jews. Look at verse 12. He says this, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, you're excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God, in the world. So Paul's trying to lay out the situation for the Ephesians here. You're spiritually dead. You have no relationship with Jesus. And you are out with those who are in. You are excluded from the citizenship in Israel. You got the wrong family, the wrong heritage, the wrong background, the wrong legacy to be included in Israel, the people that God had chosen to build up as his people. You don't have Father Abraham, who had many sons, many sons of Father Abraham. You don't have King David. You're out on the covenants, you're out on the promises. And so the Ephesians, they're wrestling with questions like, okay, well, do I, do I get to partake in any of the promises? Do, do, do I get to be part of the story? It'd be like if you came to church and you love, just, you love Jesus, you're filled with the Spirit, but you come in the building and the, all the people in the building, they've been here way longer than you, and, and they have read all the same books, and they've listened to all the same podcasts, and they've been to all the same conferences, and they know all the songs, and they have their own lingo, they have their own kind of own language, but you don't know what they're talking about. You didn't go to Sunday school. You didn't go to vacation Bible school. You never went to a summer camp. Like, I love Jesus, but I, I feel like I'm out. And it's one thing to be out with God. It's something else to be out with God's people. And when you feel like you are both, that's a lonely place to be. Spiritually dead, religiously out. There was, a, there was a wall. There was the, the haves and the have-nots. There were the, we're God's people on one side and everybody else on the other. You got your religious, you got your sinners. In Ephesians, they knew we were doubly out. We're spiritually dead. We are physically uncircumcised. And it's not just that there was this division. There was hostility between the two groups. Even after Jews followed Jesus, they treated the Gentiles like, okay, well, you're, you're technically in, but you still have to do more so that you can be all the way in. And it gets worse for them. Paul says you're without hope. There's no way out of your impossible situation. 
And that's a tough place to be. That's a tough place to be when you know that there is no one coming to save you. There is no one coming to rescue you. He says you are without God. It didn't mean necessarily they were atheists. It just means that they, 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 they would maybe have like little, little g gods, but they didn't have God, Yahweh, the one true God. In verse 13, Paul says, but this is the solution. But now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news. It's bad. But you're dead. But formerly you were. But now. The gospel is about God's new work. And if the problem is estrangement and, and distance, then the solution is a nearness and a belonging. The biggest problem facing humans is their separation from God. In a room this size, this many people, everybody has come in with some kind of problem, some kind of issue, some kind of circumstance. That might be why you're here this morning. You're like, because I'm just, I'm just at the absolute end of my rope. I don't know what to do next in my circumstance or my problem, my issue. But if, but if you're without Jesus, if you're separated from God, you have no bigger problem than that. Because life comes from God and it's enjoyed in his presence. And the only solution to that problem is proximity with God or relationship with God. And Jesus is the only one who takes us there. The only way to be put back together with God is through Jesus. In verse 14, he gives us the hinge that this all swings on. He says, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Peace is not just the absence of hostility. It's a comprehensive term for salvation and life with God. It, the background is out of this Old Testament concept of shalom, which covers wholeness, well-being, integrity, and it's referring to the way that life should be. And it's a gift that's received in the presence of God. It's equated with righteousness and justice and salvation and the reign of God. Now, peace is a central and fundamental component of Paul's theology. It's mentioned 43 times in his letters. It's mentioned eight times in the letters of Ephesians alone. And when Paul tells us that Jesus is our peace, he's telling us that Jesus makes peace, that he proclaims peace, that he's the one who makes peace possible, he's the one who announces its availability, and he's the one in whom it's enjoyed. Peace with God. So in other words, if you're a Jew, you come from the right family, right heritage, you need peace with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're a Gentile, non-Jew, you're outside, you're down and outer, no clue about God, you need peace with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says he is peace. Peace is not found in people's opinions of you. Some of you, that's where you're striving for peace. When everybody has something good to say about you, when other people feel good about you, that's when you have peace. When they don't have anything good to say about you, that's when you experience anxiety. Peace is not found in your circumstances because those change all the time. Peace is not found in your opinion of yourself because that changes. Peace is not found in your financial situation. How many times do we have to learn that lesson? Peace is not found in your health. Peace is not found in anything other than the person of Jesus Christ. And living in him, we have peace. The presence of Jesus is our peace. And when Paul is talking about this peace and this reconciliation, he's describing both a vertical dynamic, which is our relationship between man and God, and a horizontal dynamic, which is our relationship between human and human. And he says that Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
Walls can be good things. Walls can be used to protect. Walls can be used to keep out. But what Paul's saying is in the kingdom of God, dividing walls, walls that divide are to be torn down. And most commentators, they believe that Paul's referring to the barrier in the temple between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Israelites. So there was, a, there was this, this space, this court of the Gentiles, and it was the only place that the Gentiles could worship. And there were these barriers, there were these walls, and on those walls there were some strong words for those Gentiles, do not proceed any further for fear of death. If you remember in, in Acts chapter 21, we were going through Acts, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, and he's arrested because he would, had taken an Ephesian named Trophimus into the restricted temple area. And what Paul is telling the Ephesians and what he's telling us is that Jesus came to preach peace to the segregated. And thanks be to God, when Christ died, he broke down the wall. And the walls that are dividing race and gender and ethnicity and religion, Paul is telling us that God is building his house up by tearing walls down. God builds his house up by tearing walls down. In verse 15, Paul continues... He says this, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So things like circumcision and Sabbath keeping and food laws were primary indications of the distinctions between Jews and other people. And with them, it led to arrogance and name calling. Now, Paul does not abolish the law as the word of God or even as a moral guide. What is abolished is the law, that set of, the law as a set of regulations that excludes Gentiles. One of the main messages of Ephesians is that Gentiles are accepted by God in Christ on equal footing with Jews. And Jesus took that hostility of both Jews and Gentiles into himself, the hostility they had against one another. He took that into himself, and when he died, it died. It's like in Galatians chapter 3 when Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Verse 16, he says this. He says, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So what Paul's teaching us is that reconciliation, this putting back together, is both a deconstructive and a constructive act. Because not only does Christ take the hostility into himself to destroy it, but also in himself he creates a new being. And that new being, this new one man, this one new man is a corporate idea. Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection identified with and represented humanity and people are incorporated into him and when he's raised to new life, a new being comes into existence, one in which people are one with Christ and one with each other in him. So here's the shorthand for that. This grace, this unmerited, undeserved favor of God connects us to God and connects us to one another. The cross is God's act to reconcile people to himself to put people back together, to connect people, to bind people to himself and people to each other. By grace, you are bound to God. By grace, you are bound to one another. Divided humanity is reconciled in Christ and joined into this unified worshiping community called the church. And so Paul says all the name calling that he says in verse 11, that's over. When we talk about Things like circumcision and blood and Israel, it can, it can seem kind of foreign. Like, is this really relevant to us? But I think the problems that are described in this passage continue to be deeply rooted in our society and in our churches. So alienation and division 
and name-calling and separation from God, hopelessness, lack of trust, fracture. And out of those things come envy and hatred, lying, conflict, abuse, murder, war. That sounds like our world. That sounds like our society. These Jewish practices, they grew out of the reality of God's election and purposes for Israel. The, 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 the privilege, and, and when I say privilege, I mean the, the blessing. God says of them, you are blessed to be a blessing. Um, it, it was something for them to, to steward. So this privilege is in terms of stewardship. What were they to steward? What they enjoyed was real. But the arrogance and the feeling of cultural superiority this elitism, this disdain for others, that was a failure. And looking at their failure serves as a mirror for us because the church today enjoys privilege, enjoys blessing. We have much to steward. We have gifts, we have resources, we have power, we have a voice, we have the gospel. But sadly, we have not handled it any better. We have denominational conflicts. We have conflicts between Christians and non-Christians. We have racial and ethnic and gender divides. We're not talking about circumcision anymore, but the name-calling, the disparagement, the alienation, that still occurs. And too often we view privilege or blessing as something that we possess, but we know that we possess nothing but Christ to whom we are bound, and any privilege comes from him and is known only in him. What do you have that did not come from him? What in the cosmos is not held together by him. The scripture tells us plainly that all things come from him, all things are for him, all things are by him, all things are held together by him. What do you have that did not come from him? It's like Ty said last week, what are you boasting in? Where is your boasting? It's all held together by him. And when we forget this, we distort the faith and we overestimate ourselves. The, the, the theological operative, meaning like Paul's thrust in this passage, like the theology behind what Paul is teaching here in this passage, is a theology of unity in which the barrier between Jew and Gentile is destroyed and a oneness is created. Now today, unless you were born in a Jewish or Palestinian home, you'd have little awareness of any barrier that's caused by Judaism. But on the other hand, we are conscious of numerous barriers within our society and between our society and that of others that devalue and distrust and limit and take advantage of other people. So if the law in some way was the dividing wall in the ancient world, I, I, for us, I believe the dividing wall is this racial difference. Now, I know I have taught messages on this before, and so you're like, oh man, here goes this guy again. This is like his hobby horse. This is his thing. Um, or, or maybe you think, well, this is, here we go, social gospel, or this dude's a neo-Marxist, or whatever. Listen, one, I'm not that smart. Two, I have poured over this passage, and I have poured over commentaries on this passage, and I sat in a room with other pastors from all over Redemption Church in a preaching collective, and I've wrestled with this passage with the Spirit of God. This is what it's about. So if you have an issue, you can write the email just don't send it. <laughs> the hostility between races, especially blacks and whites, in virtually all countries continues as an embarrassment in our society. Economic and gender barriers create conflict and add to the alienation. Our world, it's clear, is full of barriers 
And what Paul is saying is the death of Christ abolished barriers. The barrier between the Jew and the Gentile is obvious, but if that barrier has been broken down, what other barriers can be broken down? If God does not show favoritism, if all are created in his image, if God's purpose is unity, if we are to love even our enemies, if Christ took the hostility into himself and destroyed it, on what grounds can we justify keeping any barriers in place? If we say we're a Bible people, we love the Bible, we believe the Bible, we want to live out the Bible, this is the Bible. Paul and the early church, they, they, they had already extended unity in Christ to Jew and Gentile, to slave and free, to male and female. And so none of our barriers, none of our ways of devaluing or limiting or taking advantage of others has any basis at all. The cross is the place where barriers are destroyed because it's at the cross. We're aware of our own sin. We know we have no grounds to stand on. We know that we are not better than anybody else. We know that the only reason we have access is because of God and his mercy and his grace. We must recognize that because of Christ, no barrier that rejects people is justified. The grace that has accepted us into Christ is extended to them by us. And so all people, regardless of race or status, however it is that you define that, are to be valued, enabled, and treated justly. What this passage does, and I, and I think largely the book of Ephesians does, is it confronts our individualism. We cannot separate our relationship with God from our relationship with other people. And you could argue, and rightly so, relationship with God is primary. I, I agree. But our horizontal and vertical relationships interact with and define each other. We cannot simply look at our salvation as only an individualistic dynamic. Jesus incorporates people into his own being, his death, his resurrection. That's where our salvation lies. But in him, we are a new corporate reality, a new body called the church, people bound to each other in Christ. And because we are bound to each other in him, we take our character from him and we live out the truth that we belong to one another. That's the root of our love and our care and, and justice where the show. Okay, so what do we do with this? What do we do with this passage? First, I think through humility and repentance, we have a serious family talk about how we communicate who we are. And we live like the barriers have been broken down. Words in this piece that are very clear words. Words in this text like peace, access, nearness, reconciliation, all of those words serve to serve to recognize that the barriers between God and us have been removed. We live with God, he's with us. And because of that, worship and thanksgiving are a natural part of our life and the character of God is our guide. Christians are to imitate God. You've heard us say that before. So if that's true, let's not resurrect what God has torn down. Let's not try to rebuild what God has torn down. Let's not dishonor what God honors. Let's not create barriers between races and nations and genders and social and economic classes. Let's not resurrect what God has torn down. Pa Paul's emphasis on unity, just to, to get it straight, it, it does not mean that all Christians are alike. Unity is not sameness. Unity is oneness. It does not negate differences. It does not negate cultural uniqueness or the value of culture. Jews in Christ do not become Gentiles, nor do Gentiles become Jewish Christians. It's, it's like, so if you ever eat a meal um, with my, my wife and I, you will notice that we have very distinct and unique, like, setups on our plate. So 
at Thanksgiving, there is a section over here for turkey, and there's a section for the green beans, there's a section for mashed potatoes, and a section for some other kind of casserole thing. They do not touch. They do not mix. If you look at my plate, it's like someone took the garbage disposal and just dumped it onto a plate. It's all kind of mashed together, right? So it's not sameness, it's oneness. Just because my food touches, it doesn't take away the distinctiveness of what the food is. Green beans touching mashed potatoes doesn't mean everything's now mashed potatoes. So Paul's theology of the body assumes both unity and diversity. But those distinctions and those uniqueness should not be distorted to lead to division. Enjoying your own culture is to be expected. We choose like-minded people for good reason. Worship is a cultural expression. It has the most impact when it's framed in culturally specific ways. So no one should be surprised or have an issue with the fact that an African-American might be more comfortable in an African-American church or a Korean in a Korean church or a white in a white church. Here's the issue. Oftentimes we act like the real center of our church is our culture or our preferences, not Christ. Cultural preferences are not bad, but they must take a backseat to unity in Christ. The most important question is always your identity, meaning what is the strongest defining reality for you? Is it Christ or culture? What is the strongest defining reality for you in terms of your identity? Is it Christ or is it your preference? Is it Christ or is it your tradition? Culture, heritage, distinctives, they are all important and necessary parts of our lives. But it has to be Christ, not culture, that gives the primary definition to our lives. Culture is the means by which Christ is expressed, but the message is Christ himself. And the church is a community that has traditions and liturgy and rituals, but it is ultimately not about those things because the church is about Jesus. And the other pieces of this picture, they just exist to display the role of Jesus in the church. The church gathers around the character of Christ, not the characteristics of people. The church gathers around the character of Christ, who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, not the characteristics of people. And if your culture and your preferences and your prejudices gets in the way of your Christianity, you are guilty of idolatry. Anything and any thought and any ideal that tries to usurp your identity as a son or daughter of God is an idol. We must demonstrate that the barriers are down. We must show that we love people even if, especially if, they are different culturally, economically, politically, socially. We need to demonstrate unity with Christians of other cultures. We need to seek justice and to love across cultural and racial lines. We have to show that we believe what the Bible says, that the barriers are down. Christians are by definition a people of peace, and as a people of peace, we by necessity struggle for justice and mercy. That should rule our hearts, that should rule our churches. Unity is a theological necessity. When we maintain divisions, we deny what Christ has accomplished. This is so important for us as we deal with racial hostility because the perversion of both active and passive racism, it must be challenged, it must be stopped. The church must be a place where people know that the barriers have been removed. When people are told either implicitly or explicitly that they are not welcome in church because of their color, the church has become an absurd place. 
And, and the point is not merely that all Christians are equal, which is true. The point is that all Christians have been joined together, which is far more significant. That we are bound to each other, that we belong to one another. And if the barriers are down and we are joined to other believers, then, then we have to respond in significant ways. Unity is not just this kumbaya experiment. Unity is a kingdom experience. Acceptance and valuing people of other races on an equal level is a necessity. An attitude that says they are not our kind destroys the body of Christ. This is a major place of repentance for the church. We need to invest in Christians of other races because you don't value what you don't care about or contribute to and you need to demonstrate that other groups matter. When we try to do this in our church planning, we try to do this even within Redemption Church, with our leaders in places like West Mesa or Hambra, with church plants that we contribute to in places like Harlem, African-American leaders there. You have to invest in Christians of other races, Christians that are not like you. You care about what you contribute to. We need to seek justice for those who are not like us. When we talk about issues that are pertaining to groups that are other than us, we tell groups that they matter to us. Now, I know firsthand, justice is and can be complicated. See the debate on immigration. But the church should be leading the conversation about justice and compassion so that whole groups of people are not placed on a second tier. Racism has to be named, confronted, and rejected. Lastly, we need to be involved. Unity does not exist without involvement. There's a pastor named Charles Montgomery. He says, it's hard to have a multi-ethnic church if her people are not living a multi-ethnic life. Hands need to be joined in worship. Hands need to be joined in learning and ministry and evangelism. The most significant witness of the love of Christ is the ability of Christians of various races to care for and to work with each other. Closes with this, verse 17. Paul says this, he who is Jesus, Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access to the Father, put back together with God by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. This book of Ephesians is teaching us something beautiful and brilliant. That Jesus is reconciling humans to God. Jesus is putting us back together with God. He's reconciling us to each other. He's putting us back together with each other. He's reconciling us to the entire creation. He's breaking down divisions between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. So therefore, because of what we're learning, because of what we see clearly in the scriptures, we are to be committed to being healing communities that are engaged in the work of reconciliation wherever sin and evil hold sway. We must seek to be diverse communities of hope that realize and lean into the power of the cross to reconcile what has been separated by sin. Let's pray and ask God to help us with that. God, thank you for um, your word this morning. God, I thank you for the relevance of the scriptures. I thank you for the, the, the power of the scriptures. God, you tell us um, that before we go to the speck in someone else's eye, God, would we first examine the log in our own? And so I, God, ask 
by the power of your spirit that there would be some eye examinations going on in this room with your people, with your church. God, I pray it starts with me. God, I, I do pray, um, God, that this is not just something where we'll listen to this and maybe it ruffles us a little bit, maybe it bothers us a little bit, maybe it makes us feel bad, but God, it doesn't do anything to us. God, you tell us clearly, don't just listen to the word. Do what it says. And so God, um, I pray for grace. God, I pray for your power. God, that we would do what you tell us to do. That we would be who you've called us to be because of who you are to us. God, I thank you for reconciliation and restoration and redemption. They are all works that we do not deserve, that we could never earn. And they're done beautifully and powerfully in you through your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.